0: The year is 55 BCE. You are riding as a British cavalry scout on the coastline of Britain, the surf pounding the white cliffs far below you.
1: Your scouting party sees ships start to appear out of the mist in the distance.
2: Many
0: ships. With more men than you have ever seen.
1: Their oars dip in unison to the distant
2: percussion of the drums. They are heading to your homeland. Your clan will have no choice but to fight. Caesar's invasions of Britain brought about a new age in Roman expansion
0: and military exploration, and it was only one small part of the legacy he left to us. In this podcast, we'll visit the dynamics that led Caesar to this unheard of feat, the particulars of his conquests, and the formative effects it has on our world today.
3: But before we address Caesar's actual invasion, we need to understand the events that lead up to his landing at the edge of the known world. Thanks to an increased sphere of influence from the Gallic Wars, Caesar was forced to contend with new enemies, chiefly the Marini, Veneti, and Germans. The year before planning his invasion of Britain, Rome had fought and destroyed the Veneti, a Gallic tribe renowned for its seafaring abilities and shipbuilding technology. According to Strabo, Britain may have been a key factor in the Veneti war, as the Veneti had a monopoly on British trade and they feared the Romans would interrupt that. Although a more probable explanation was likely that the Veneti resented Roman conquest. Regardless of the reason why, the result of the war was the same for the Veneti, destruction of their state and enslavement of their people. The Roman fleet built to campaign against the Veneti, along with the shipbuilding techniques learned from them, would later prove instrumental to Caesar's incursion of Britain. Due to the alliance between the Veneti and the British, Caesar had that famous Roman justification when it came to declaring war, as he claimed the Brits were secretly stirring up the Germans and supporting the Gauls against Rome. Now, an additional thing to keep in mind with Caesar's decision to conduct the first British invasion is that it's following another first, uh, which is his crossing of the Rhine. Caesar's invasion of Germany had made him wildly popular with the Roman people, and it doesn't take much imagination to see how Caesar might want the glory that comes with being the first to invade the world's end. So, accepting a peace treaty from the rebellious Marini, Caesar avoided a winter campaign in Gaul and bought himself the time to have nearly 100 ships built or requisitioned. As a final preparation for the invasion, Caesar sent out Gaius Vulcinius to find a suitable landing site, as well as Comius, king of the Atrebates, to serve as an ambassador. Caesar's attempt to gather information from the merchants would, however, backfire, as they would warn Britain of the incoming invasion and lead to a contested landing.
0: With preparations made, Caesar sets sail with his force, hugging the British coastline until he comes to the first suitable landing site, the beach at modern-day Pegwell. His deep-keeled troop transports were unable to deliver the troops troops all the way to the beach proper, and they were forced to jump into the chest-deep surf and wade into the beach encumbered by heavy armor, all the while sustaining missile attacks by the British cavalry and charioteers. This made the Romans understandably reticent to jump into the waves en masse, until an aquilifer, or Roman eagle bearer, encouraged the troops to land, jumping into the water first and charging towards the beach-bound barbarians, leading by example, and at this point the men jump in towards combat. With his troops beset by the British cavalry, Caesar pulls up two battleships for ballista support on the flanks and once the cavalry is finally overwhelmed the Romans gain a toehold on beach and start building a Roman style field fortification. The next day the British send a negotiating party to Caesar's fort and sue for peace which Caesar accepts and takes some British hostages. At this point the Roman cavalry still has not shown up and Caesar has to send a foraging party out. Some time passes during the day, and lookouts from the fortifications see a dust cloud in the distance, alerting Caesar, who hastens to their aid. According to Caesar, whose accounts survive, his foraging party is beset on all sides by raiding British British chariots, and Caesar comes to their aid with a cohort of troops, scattering the British and saving the foragers. The beleaguered Romans return to the fort, and in the coming days, the weather takes a turn for the worse. The tides rise where the ships are beached, and the ships are buffeted against the rocky shoreline by a storm, severely damaging many of the ships. During this same storm, Caesar's cavalry reinforcements are blown off course and are forced to turn back towards Gaul. Caesar, disheartened, sends men from his force as work parties to try and repair the boats so that his forces may escape and avoid being trapped on the island. The Romans get some boats repaired, and Caesar records a tactical retreat in his annals across the channel to winter his troops, although the modern reader envisions a full turning of tail. Caesar had, however, gained valuable insight into the geography, the climate, the importance of weather on military operations, the the necessity of a larger fleet and infantry and cavalry, and the disposition and makeup of the opposing forces. He would take these lessons and
2: use the information to great effect next time. After this, Caesar returns to Rome with valuable information and begins to prepare for the second invasion while bolstering his military might and strategy. Caesar then makes his gallant return to Britain after his retreat the previous year. He uses the expansion of knowledge about Britain and its forces to make much needed needed changes during his next assault, such as the increase from two legions to five, the input of cavalry equaling 2,000, and 628 ships. Caesar makes a point to also increase Roman technological advancement that focuses on ship landings and the advancement of the armament for his men, which led to Caesar's ego being focused even more on the idea of the British being scared of the fleet he had amassed in such a short amount of time. This led to the British not attacking him upon arrival and the overall scared offensive that the British mounted against him. Advancement and insight about strategic military points located in certain regions, regions in Britain helps Caesar to gain knowledge about specific points that should be captured by Roman forces, such as the taking of woodland fortresses. However, Storm destroys Caesar's ships yet again, having not learned from the first invasion, which he then orders his men to repair yet again. This takes ten days, and Caesar loses mass resources and manpower. After this blunder, the initial fighting inland begins, focused around Casavallanus as the appointed leader of the Britons, which had set aside their differences, to appoint him. He uses early guerrilla tactics and chariots against Caesar, Caesar. though this was not his original plan, as many of his men early on deserted Casavallanus, as they were routed so violently by Caesar and his troops during battle. Caesar then records his only lost officer after a skirmish during the second invasion, and considers other losses to just be parts of war. The skirmishes eventually lead to a final offensive on the beachhead near the river store, which was under the command of Quintus Ardius. This was an attempt to draw Caesar away and kill him, which failed and led to the beginning of the end for the Britons. Multiple tribes begin to surrender, starting with the people of the Trinobontus, and many others followed them soon after. Caesar's final letter to Cicero, while in Britain, explained his conquest, which ended with a lack of booty, but many hostages, and the return of his army to Gaul.
4: Now that my co-stars have given an account of the events given to us by Roman tradition, and perspective, I would like to point out that there was another side to this tale. Though nowhere near as many sources remain from the Brightons, there are a few. Oral traditions from from the time of this invasion, passed down from generation to generation, were later recorded in Welsh manuscripts. Welsh manuscripts of the oral tradition tell a tale of glorious single combat between Caesar and King Ninia, where the brightened king lands a blow to Caesar's head, after Caesar had cut him. But his gladius was caught in the brightened shield. Ninia then takes the gladius from his shield and turns the sword on the Roman soldiers. Caesar then flees to Gaul, leaving behind many men. In the second invasion, Caswellon, the brother of Ninia, who had died from the wound inflicted by Caesar, gathers tribes to face the Romans, but he declines to call on the northern tribes who had helped him in the first invasion, even though they were eager to face the Romans once more. Thus he insults the northern tribes, and with, and will lead to the division that will allow the eventual Roman victory and occupation of the island that lasted for many centuries. Welsh, Welsh t- tradition holds that it was Caswallon's disregard and exclusion of the northern tribes that allowed the Roman victory, and eventually caused a great rift between north and south that remains evident today. Roman sources, though clearer, more readily available, and possibly more reliant due to the fact that they were written at the time, are still biased and therefore not entirely trustworthy, and do not take the Brighton point of view into account. They also have been glorified for Roman political and historical reasons. Brighton oral tradition, however, turned these events into an into a heroic tale so as to glorify their own history, even their defeat, and most likely to explain political realities of a later time. Oral tradition is much more unclear, and likely to have been distorted through the passage of time, but the sources are still valuable if only to give us both perspectives and the clear views of the events that occurred, thus it was important to include them in the telling of this tale.
1: So after all this, the question needs to be asked, what was all this for? What came out of Caesar's two invasion that spanned 55 and 54 BCE? We will look at the legacy of these invasions from four spheres of legacy. First, to Caesar and his political career, second to Britain and the tribal relations that were changed, third to how it was viewed in Rome, and lastly how it impacted cross-channel relations and set a precedent for cross-channel warfare. To Caesar, his British invasions are just an extension of his populist movements and politics. Just like Rob mentioned, before invading Britain, he crossed the Rhine with a Roman army, making him the first to do so. Therefore, we can see how people would react to an invasion of Britain. At this point, Britain is a very mysterious place. It's essentially the end of the known world to the Romans. No one knew what kind of riches it could hold. We know, obviously, with hindsight, that there weren't any, so that's just a bummer for him. So we can see that Caesar traveling there is really huge, making him popular not only with his soldiers, but also with Roman citizens. In regards to Britain... The legacy left behind is very different. Upon Caesar's victory, the tribes were fractured. Although over a hundred years passed with little Roman interest on the island, Caesar laid the foundations for over 360 years of Roman rule, pushing back the Celts and Welsh and allowing for Anglo-Saxon immigration. It also specifically entered Britain into the known Roman world. In Rome itself, we know that the senators didn't really care. They weren't bothered by what Caesar was doing, but if there wasn't money to be made, they didn't want any part of it. This is best characterized in a correspondence between Cicero and his younger brother Quintus. Cicero says, I hear there is no gold or silver in Britain. If this is so, I advise you to get a war chariot and hasten back to us as soon as possible. As I've already said, Caesar's populist movement was rampant amongst the common people in Rome and the citizens throughout the empire, giving Caesar even more political power that he would use to deadly effect later in his career. In regards to cross-channel warfare, Caesar's invasions were the first truly recorded cross-channel attacks. Many conflicts would arise concerning this area in the next 2,000 years. From the building of the Dover Castle by John Lackland, William the Conqueror's invasions in the Hundred Year of War, all the way to D-Day and even the Dunkirk Retreat, the legacy of Caesar's cross-channel invasion set a precedent for fighting throughout the water barrier that was once the end of the known world.